Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. In 1351 BCE, a long procession wound its way through the hills east of Arket Aten. Amid sheer cliffs and tumbled rocks, the parade made a stately progress away from the city. At the heart of the group, a wooden sled, built like a shrine and ornamented in gold, carried a glittering coffin. Within that coffin, a mummified body lay in state, one arm crossed over its shoulder, signifying its royalty. The procession was a funeral, the last journey of a ruler making their way to the afterlife. All around, mourners threw dust over their heads, wailing at the calamity. Priests rattled the sistra, singers chanted the dirges, and as the procession trudged along, they moved from the world of the living towards the world of the dead. The year was approximately 1351 BCE. Regnal year 12, under the majesty of Nefer Keperu Ra, Wa En Ra, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the son of Ra, Akhenaten. Pharaoh was now 30 years old, give or take, and he had accomplished a great deal in his first decade of rule. Looking back, it is easy to see this period as a wave of changes, with Akhenaten reshaping his world. The king's religious beliefs appear front and centre, and they seem to define everything around him. His promotion of Aten was a big deal, so was the new style of public art, and the creation of a new city, Amana, where the king could rule in peace. In hindsight, Akhenaten's first decade appears to be a whirlwind of radical personal decrees. Behind the scenes, though, things were undoubtedly more complex. Looking back, it is easy to view the art, the monuments, and the grand proclamations as a record of immense dictatorial power. But these public images only reveal what Akhenaten wanted us to see. They do not necessarily show his true personality, or the day-to-day -day influences that shaped his views and decisions. In terms of political power, things were far more nuanced. Pharaoh could make decisions and state those decisions publicly, but making them happen was another matter entirely. In other words, although Akhenaten appears all-powerful, the reality was probably more complex. 
there were limits to a pharaoh's power, and when it came to radical change, Akhenaten's society and his environment could push back in surprising ways. As we move into the third phase of his reign, we need to look more closely at the cultural circumstances of Akhenaten's decisions. If the king wanted to achieve something, how far could he go before society started to challenge him? If Akhenaten's ideas were radical or innovative, how far would people tolerate it? And if he pushed his subjects emotionally and physically, how far could he push before things started to break down? From year 12 onwards, these questions become a lot more visible, and we can begin to explore the boundaries which limited a pharaoh's power. One of the first and most visible challenges was disease. Starting in year 12, Akhenaten would have to deal with a very practical challenge, as members of his court, his family, and his community fell victim to a plague. This challenge would have massive implications for the king on a personal and political level. Today, we begin to explore this disease and how it affected the royal family. As regnal year 12 drew to its close, Akhenaten had just finished celebrating a grand festival of tribute, in which members of the government and the empire presented him with their gifts. The imagery of this event emphasizes the splendor, the overwhelming sense of authority and majesty which the pharaoh of Egypt wielded. On the walls of private tombs which depict the celebrations, we are only shown the happy, mighty facade. Unfortunately for Akhenaten, this public image would soon begin to crack. The festival of tribute brought its own complications and repercussions. It began at a biological level, as foreign embassies and royal representatives visited Amarna from the north, they brought with them the first sparks of plague. Disease had been sweeping through Lebanon, Syria, and Cyprus. Now it came to Egypt, and soon people at Amarna began to die. The first to go was Akhenaten's mother. Sometime around 1351 BCE, the great Queen T, mother of Pharaoh, died. T was approximately 60 years old, and she had ruled Egypt, in one form or another, for about 50 years. That is two whole generations. For many Egyptians, T would have been in power for as long as they could remember, and her influence probably stretched far and wide. T's social, political, and economic network must have been vast. Her death was a loss for many different reasons. We cannot know how Alkanaten felt when his mother died. If their relationship was close, we can only guess that from monuments and public imagery. Certainly, Queen T had influenced her son in some practical ways. We think she might have assisted him when he first came to power. Queen T appeared on monuments as the king's guide, and she may have helped her son navigate the realities of rule. At the very least, she appeared alongside him as an ally, in her official capacity as the great wife of the king, Hemet Nesut Weret. Twelve years later, though, T is a lot harder to see. She appears on a few monuments, which I touched on in episode 120, Reverend Mother. She also owned an estate or palace with prominent servants. But beyond that, we don't really know anything about her life. Was she happy at Aket Aten? Did she enjoy her last years? 
Impossible to tell, the evidence tells us nothing beyond a carefully curated image presented to the public. Then again, perhaps we can get a small sense of T's relationship with her son. You see, when T died, Akhenaten gave her a significant honour, one that we have not seen before in royal burials. When the moment came, Akhenaten laid T to rest in a chamber of his own royal tomb. East of Arket Aten, a long canyon snakes its way through the hills. It is an old riverbed, or wadi, which cuts through the cliffs that ring Arket Aten on three sides. If you follow the wadi for a few kilometres, you will eventually reach the place where Pharaoh decided to build his tomb. Akhenaten chose a spot far from the city for the burial monuments of himself and his family. Here, in a sort of new valley of the kings, Akhenaten buried his mother in the grave that we call the Royal Tomb of Amarna. The Royal Tomb takes the form of a long passageway descending into the earth. It is mostly straight, which is unusual for the time. Previously, Royal tombs of the 18th dynasty tended to have a corkscrew layout, the passages twisted as they went down into the earth. Akhenaten, or his architects, abandoned that old layout and opted for something more straightforward. Here, in the cliffs east of the city, they built the monument that would be Pharaoh's resting place. They also used it for tea. It's not clear why Akhenaten buried his mother in a chamber of his own tomb. Normally, we might expect her to lie in the grave of her husband, the late Amunhotep III. But that was far away, in the southern city of Thebes, a place that Akhenaten had abandoned when he moved to his new residence. Perhaps, having left that city, Pharaoh did not want to return, and he decided to bury his mother here at Arket Aten, a new, purer environment. It is unclear... Whatever his exact motivation, Akhenaten placed T's coffin in his own burial chamber, and Egyptologists have been able to reconstruct part of this. The burial chamber of Akhenaten's tomb is a rough, square hall with two columns on one side. Beside the columns, the western wall, the one facing the sunset, has a scene of Queen T's funeral. On this wall, decorative carvings show a woman, or statue, standing in a sort of kiosk, a small shrine with a canopy overhead. The roof of this kiosk is decorated with cobras, uraei, which indicate royalty, and the rays of the Aten shine down from above. In front of the kiosk, Akhenaten and Nefertiti hold their hands up to the Aten and to Queen Ti, who is almost certainly the figure in the shrine. The king and queen stand before tables piled high with offerings. Apparently, we are seeing an image of T's funeral, or the worship of her eternal spirit. The figure, or statue, might be an image of T's ka, her vitality and essence, which persisted after death. In this sense, Akhenaten and Nefertiti are giving food and drink to help T live forever and ever, long after her body has died. It is a touching scene in the heart of the royal tomb. Below this image, the western part of the chamber was probably used for T's burial. Archaeologists excavating the tomb down to its tiniest fragment have found pieces of the queen's sarcophagus, the stone chamber that once held her coffin. 
The sarcophagus was destroyed long ago, smashed by vandals attacking the memory of Akhenaten. But pieces survive, and these were carefully reconstructed by Marc Gabold, a French professor whom we will meet a bit later. Thanks to Gabold's work and the various excavations that have cleared this tomb, we can get a sense of Queen T's burial. Queen T lay within a sarcophagus made of granite. The decorations of the chest show a similar image to her funeral. T stands in a shrine with a table of offerings before her. Akhenaten and Nefertiti, plus Merit Aten, make offerings to her, and the Aten shines down from above. We get a couple more details to flesh out this image. For one, we see more of T's costume. She wears long robes, pleated and flowing, and on her head the queen wears her personal crown, a flat cap with two feathers on top and a sun disk in the middle. In her left hand, T holds a flail which she presses to her chest. It is an image of divine royalty, an ideal that T and Akhenaten hoped she would enjoy for eternity. In front of T's shrine, Akhenaten and his family make offerings. The pharaoh lifts a small vessel, a kind of pot, which pours water or oil for his mother. This vessel is shaped like an ankh, the symbol for life, and it happens to correspond with an actual vessel discovered in another tomb of this period. We will come back to that tomb in a moment, but suffice to say, the small, ankh-shaped vessel is a real thing. We see it on T's sarcophagus, and we have the physical object. Perhaps this jar was the tool which Akhenaten himself used to consecrate T's burial. Looking at the jar, you can almost imagine the pharaoh's hand, trembling as he sprinkled water and oil on the coffin of his mother. It is a fantasy, perhaps, but a touching image nonetheless, one that we can only get from the physical objects found in these tombs. T's sarcophagus was destroyed in antiquity, and we probably would have lost all of her burial goods if not for a lucky twist of fate. Years after her death, Queen T's mummy and many of her belongings were taken out of the royal tomb and transported to Thebes. There, in the Valley of the Kings, somebody reburied the queen, hiding her away in a small crypt. That crypt, called KV-55, was unearthed in 1907, and within, excavators found many pieces of Queen T's burial. One of T's funerary items was an ornate set of shrines. These were made of wood, covered with gold, and they were decorated with scenes of the Great Queen. The pictures show T wearing her tall, plumed crown. She stands behind Akhenaten while the pharaoh makes offerings to the sun god. The light of Aten streams down upon the king, and also on T. In one hand, Aten holds an ankh to T's nose, allowing her to breathe the breath of life. The queen herself raises an incense burner, sprinkling grains over a table of offerings. Interestingly, it seems that the gifts which Akhenaten and T presented to Aten were actually on fire. The tables, piled with goods, have the unmistakable shape of flames flaring at the top. It is an interesting feature, one that we don't see very often. T's shrines are fragmented, badly damaged, but they're still beautiful. They give a sense of the wealth which the queen and her son commanded, and when she went to her eternal rest, T did so as a divine figure. 
All around, her burial would have glittered with the sheen of gold. The shrines were found in KV-55, the crypt where somebody reburied Queen T. Unfortunately, the Queen's mummy was not in KV-55 when archaeologists reopened it. At some point after the reburial, a later generation of Egyptians had removed the mummy from this crypt and taken it to another tomb, which is where it stayed for more than 3,000 years, until it was discovered at the end of the 19th century. After the break, we will explore the fascinating story of Queen T's mummy, what happened to it, how it was discovered, and how it took nearly a century for scientists to identify it. In chapter 2, we explore the amazing afterlife of T, and then we dig into her legacy, looking back on the life of this queen, one of Egypt's greatest. That is chapter 2, after the break. See you in a moment. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. In 1898, a remarkable discovery came to light. This was a cache, a collection of mummies, hidden in the tomb of Amunhotep II, great-grandfather of Akhenaten and grandfather-in-law of Queen T. Amunhotep's tomb had been reused around 1100 BCE. At that time, priests had collected several mummies from different graves in the Valley of the Kings. They re-wrapped these mummies, restoring them to good condition, and placed them in the side chamber of Amunhotep's tomb. There, the mummies lay in rest for 3,000 years, until their rediscovery. Among the many bodies which emerged from this cache, one was an elderly woman whom the excavators dubbed the Elder Lady. The name is self-explanatory, it's the body of a woman who died at an advanced age. The woman lay in state with her left arm crossed over her chest and her right arm at her side. The mummy had clearly suffered damage from tomb robbery at some point. A large chunk of her abdomen was shattered and broken. The priests had packed this hole with linen to restore the shape of the body and possibly give the deceased some healing in the afterlife. Fortunately, the overall body was still in good condition, and the mummy herself was stunning. The elder lady has beautifully preserved skin, distinctive cheekbones, nose and teeth in great condition, and her eyes are gently closed. On top, the pièce de résistance is her hair, a mass of flowing locks dyed red with henna. The hair is thick but receding, high up on her brow. 
Perhaps the lady was balding, or she shaved her forehead. Either way, this hair was extremely important for identifying the mummy herself. In 1975, researchers from the University of Michigan decided to examine the mummy of the elder lady. First, x-rays showed that her skull was almost identical to the mummy of Chuyu, the mother of Queen T, who was found in an intact tomb. Episode 97b. Armed with these x-rays, the researchers were granted permission to take a hair sample from the mummy and compare it with another. They analysed this hair and its relationship to a lock of hair found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. The lock of hair was kept in a tiny coffin in the boy king's burial, and this coffin was labelled with the name T. The researchers put both hairs under the microscope, along with several others as a control group. Through a variety of tests, they concluded that the hair of the elder lady and the hair of T from Tutankhamun's tomb were a match. As you can imagine, this study prompted great excitement, and the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago ran a newsletter with the giant headline, Queen T found! Exclamation mark. But the result was not universally accepted. After the original publication in 1978, some analysts responded with concerns over the accuracy of the results. I'll spare you the boring academic debate, but you can read a fascinating summary of it at a website, which I will link on the blog post. Long story short, the debate went back and forth a couple of times over the next 20 years. But it seemed, overall, like the elder mummy probably was Queen T. Then, in 2010, the famous DNA study of several royal mummies arrived at the same conclusion. According to that study, the elder lady was most likely Queen T, which seems decent enough, a second opinion in a different study reaching the same conclusion. Of course, there are all kinds of questions regarding that 2010 study, which we will cover in a future episode. For now though, it seems like we probably have the mummy of T. At the very least, two different studies in different circumstances have reached the same conclusion. So we have our second opinion, as it were. On that basis, I am willing to accept the identification. The elder lady is probably Queen T's mummy. So, in 1351 BCE, the Queen Mother T died. Her son, Pharaoh Akhenaten, buried her in his own royal tomb. There, the Queen lay within a magnificent sarcophagus, her body protected by shrines made of wood and gold. Akhenaten sprinkled oils over his mother's container, then sealed it away for her eternal rest. At that moment, T's earthly reign ended, and her eternal reign began. Years later, someone removed T's body and her burial goods from this tomb. They transported her to Thebes and placed her within a crypt, which we know as KV-55. There, her body rested for many years, until a later generation found it, removed it, and buried it in a cache of royal mummies. Finally, that cache and T's mummy came to light, and from the late 1800s to the early 21st century, her body went through one test after another. At last, the basic questions were satisfied, for now, and she rests with other royal mummies in the Cairo Museum. Quite the journey for an ancient Egyptian queen.
1351 BCE, the funeral procession made its way through the hills east of Arket Aten to the royal tomb. There, in a crypt hidden within the earth, mourners laid the coffin of tea into its sarcophagus. Sealing the lid, the officiants stepped back while Akhenaten sprinkled oils onto the container. Pouring liquid from an unk-shaped vessel, the pharaoh commended his mother to the protection of Aten. Then, servants erected the golden shrines around her coffin, sealing it away from prying eyes. As the door of the shrine closed, darkness fell upon T's burial, and her long rest began. From this moment forward, the queen was a memory, but a powerful memory indeed. As far as queens go, T enjoyed a long and splendid legacy. She was prominent, influential, wealthy, and respected. Not only did she participate in one of Egypt's most celebrated reigns, she also lingered in the memory of her people. Today, T has a reputation as one of the great queens of Egypt, and even though she did not reach the political heights of, say, Hatshepsut, T's legacy was far more enduring. Decades after her death, T and her husband were remembered as the last legitimate rulers of this period. The queen would continue to appear on monuments, particularly objects of private worship. On a stone stela from the reign of Ramesses II, we see T seated with her husband beside the gods Osiris and Isis. At the top of this stela, T and Amunhotep sit enthroned on the left, while Osiris sits on the right. Isis, for some reason, stands behind her husband. So, oddly enough, T appears to be more prominent than Isis. Her figure is larger overall, and she gets to sit comfortably while Isis stands. That might not be significant for the original artist, but in the 21st century, it is noticeable. T herself had an interesting life. When she first came to the throne, she was a wealthy but second-tier figure. Her parents, Yuya and Chuyu, were influential but not royal. So the young queen was taking a massive step up the social ladder. We can never know how she felt about the marriage, but it certainly seems like she learned the habits of power quite successfully. As queen, T enjoyed comforts beyond any other. She lived in opulence, probably dividing her time among palaces up and down the Nile Valley. From the ornate halls of Malkata, episode 103, to the countryside retreat of Gurob, episode 88, T's lifestyle was a world away from most of her subjects. This made her an object of fascination, probably of envy, and no small amount of awe. T's life was marked by prosperity, or excess, far beyond any predecessor. When Amunhotep III wanted to honour his wife with a gift, he commissioned an entire lake, an artificial pool on which they sailed. When foreign kings hoped to gain influence with the pharaoh, some of them wrote to T, seeking her help. As a result, we can view T as a figure of unusual influence, a queen wielding power in ways that do not show up, usually, in the written or artistic record. We don't know if T was exceptionally powerful or just exceptionally well-preserved, but either way, the great king's wife appears as a prominent example of queenship, 
an unusually influential woman in a patriarchal system. The images of Queen T show a woman conforming to a well-established tradition. She did not break with convention like Hatshepsut. T appeared always as the loving, devoted wife of Egypt's ruling king. In art, she is deferential, supportive, always assisting the monarch, but never overshadowing him. When she appears with Amunhotep III or Akhenaten, T is the secondary figure. Then again, T is sometimes unusual for the scale of her art. By the end of Amunhotep III's reign, the queen appeared as a figure almost as large as her husband. Conventionally, a royal woman would be much shorter, reflecting her secondary status to her husband. But in the later years of Amunhotep III, T appeared the same size, a visual equal to the mighty pharaoh of Egypt. Whether this equality was tangible or merely lip service, we will never know, but the image of this queen certainly projects authority. Beyond the palace walls, T was also celebrated in images throughout the wider world. The queen's name travelled far and wide, and archaeologists have found relics of T in many places. Her name appears on objects as far away as Canaan, and even the island of Crete. These objects, and others, hint at the international connections that the great queen enjoyed. So, looking back on T's life and reign, the queen appears to be a poster child for 18th dynasty power. And by the standards of ancient Egyptian belief, her afterlife has been incredibly successful. T's name lives, her body survives, her face endures. The towering statues trumpet her prestige, the artifacts reveal her wealth, the fragments of her burial goods preserve her mystique, and the sleeping mummy maintains her dignity. Surely, by many ancient standards, T has achieved a type of immortality. Long may she reign. and thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. This was episode 126, Two Funerals and a Wedding, part one. Originally, the story of T's death was one half of a much longer episode. But as the final editing began, I realised that this lady deserved more. We have spent so much time with T, grown so attached, that recounting her death as a mere chapter in a wider arc seemed wrong somehow. So, this is part one. Part two will follow in a couple of days. Before we go, I would like to introduce you to a new composer who is making music for the podcast. Bettina Joy de Guzman, also known as Ancient Lyric, generously agreed to write some new songs that I could use on the show. You heard her music at the very start, in a piece titled Royal Funeral. Then, her song, Splendours of Egypt, rounded out the episode. 
Moving forward, Bettina's songs will feature at many important moments in our story. I'm grateful for her work, and if you would like to hear more, including some beautiful pieces inspired by the Greeks, follow the links in the episode description. This episode was brought to you by many people. Firstly, I'd like to thank Sarah, Matt, and Dean, who became patrons of the podcast at the Overseer and Hereditary Noble tiers. Thank you very much for your support, folks. May Sakmet, the powerful lady, protect you from all ills and bring health and wealth to you and your household. Also, my immense gratitude to Linda, Ellen, Neil, Terry, and Kevin, who are priest-level supporters on Patreon. Your generosity is too great, folks, and I make offerings to Aten on your behalf. Surely the sun god will rain light and prosperity upon you, for he makes all life flourish. Finally, thank you to you for listening to the podcast. I recently celebrated six and a half million downloads of the show, for which I can only say, wow, thank you. This little hobby that I started in my spare time has grown in ways that I could never imagine, and I am thankful to all of you for your support. Here's to you and the next chapter in the wonderful history of my favorite culture. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.